I think that um, initial reaction was I felt quite strong anger towards adults. <laughs> I, I was just like, yeah. I was a little girl. I was thinking, what, how can adults in this world create a world like this where a little girl needs to beg for her food and money to just make basic needs? And so I think that was my starting point for my career. Mm. Welcome to another episode of Made with Japan. I am your host, Ken Shibasawa. Since my last podcast was published, I was named as one of the members of Prime Minister Kishida's Council on New Capitalism. What is new capitalism? Well, we'll try to figure it out. I think one important aspect is including this concept of global health, which is a topic that we discussed in our previous episode. So, on this episode, we'll have a follow up on global health, which is about delivering solutions so that all people around all over the world can live healthy lives, which is a basic human need. My guest, I think you'll find, is very, very cheerful, very energetic, very passionate regarding advancing global health in our world. I think you'll enjoy it very much. So, can we start? Okay. <laughs> when, when were you in the States? Did you grow up in the States? Maybe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, from Which second s- Texas for a long time. Oh, Texas. <laughs> That's interesting, too. Okay. Uh, I used was to it get Austin? Houston and Austin. Oh. So. And what was your parents doing there? My father used to work for the Bank of Tokyo. Oh, interesting. Bank of Tokyo is now MUFG. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's 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 no longer no no longer in existence. (laughs) It just kind of faded into the big red. Which years were you there? Like between what what years? Where in the United States from 1969 through 1983. Oh, so that's most of your early. Yeah. So yeah. So I was made in Japan. Uh, I'm the I'm the product of the American education system. Oh wow! Did you did you graduate in the U.S.? Where yeah, b- barely. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, I barely graduated. And then, as an engineer, I, was, I used to be in a chemical engineering. Oh wow! <laughs> I background. This is so interesting. Okay, yeah. wow. Yeah. So you're more American then. But I lived in Japan for over thirty-five years now, so it's it's. Did it's, you feel Did you feel like an alien when you came back to Japan? Just well, I mean, <laughs> people still think I'm a space alien here in Japan. Okay. We should start. Yeah, we we've already started the conversation, but <laughs> I didn't even wasn't able to make the introduction yet. Okay, so. Let's start the conversation. I want to welcome Mihoko Kashiwakara. She is the head of East Asian Relations at the Gates Foundation. And the Gates Foundation is a very, very uh, prominent figure in the area of global health, uh, a topic we discussed in the last uh, episode. So I'm really glad to have Mihoko on the show today. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Shibusa-san. Sure, sure. So... 
the Gates Foundation. It's kind of it's a, it's kind of a, it's a really big organization, and mm-hmm. um, and I've had uh, you know kind of relationship with the Gates Foundation as an organization for I don't know maybe the last 10, 10 years or so. But you joined about five six years ago. Is that right? I joined in two thousand seventeen. Two thousand seventeen. So four years. Kind of curious how the journey that you took led you to the Gates Foundation. So prior to mm-hmm. the Gates Foundation, um, what, what was your area of uh, expertise? Okay, well, I have to go back to when I was six years old. Six? That's <laughs> way back. Well, not so way, not so way back, sorry. <laughs> Wait, way back for me. Back. <laughs> way back. Um, but basically, I, uh, like you, I grew up in the States. And um, I, I basically knew Japan and the United States when I was growing up as a kid, but I had the privilege to sort of um, visit Mexico when I was six years old with my family. And um, that was the first time I, I witnessed poverty and in, in, in what that means to children. And um, I met a little girl walking on the streets of Mexico City and she was barefoot. She um, she she looked at about my age, but she was very thin and very beautiful eyes. And she held her hand up and asked for me, um, asking for money. And that was like, it was a shocking sight for, for me as a six-year-old girl growing up in the States and learning in some places in, in some parts of the world, you actually have a lot of children who are struggling to live live and have their own food and that was what really sort of created this path that I've, I've always wanted to work to alleviate sort of poverty um, and make sure that we're we're providing a a society and economy that provides the basic needs for any any child born wherever you are on this planet but I think that um Initial reaction was I felt quite strong anger towards adults. <laughs> I, I was just like, yeah. I was a little girl, I was thinking, what how can adults in this world create a world like this where a little girl needs to beg for her food and money to just m- make basic needs? And so I think that was my starting point for my career. But oh, so anger. Um, <laughs> I think oh, I my see. anger is a little more hidden, but I think that sort of drove my career forward. And um, when I was in university, I went to um, Keio University, SFC. I was kind when, of- when, when did you, sorry, when did you return to Japan? So I moved back and forth between the two countries. Uh-huh. So in the first time I was there between my ages two to nine, mm-hmm. and then I moved back to Japan when I moved back to Japan, I was in fourth grade. I didn't know how to read or write hiragana, katakana, kanji. Wow, really? Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think for like at least like six months, all mm-hmm. of my grades were like a big zero. <laughs> <laughs> I had no clue what was going on. Yeah. And um, so I, I did have a hard time like adjusting to these, the two countries, which were very different. U.S. and Japan are very different countries culturally as well. So the way I behaved and um, the way I sort of spoke my opinion was it, yeah. it, it all had to change. Did, did, you, did you when you entered uh, elementary school? Was it a public school or a private school? It was a public school in Japan. Oh, okay, all mm-hmm. right. So so there were all kinds of 
people and and you were yeah. kind of a uh I was the alien in the classroom you were the alien okay <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah but basically when I um so the second time I was back in the United States was two years of high school okay. um and then I think I was kind of trying to understand if I want to go to an American university or a Japanese university. And in the end, I, I chose that I wanted to study in Japan. So I went to Keio University. Why, why was that? Um, well, this is going to be a, a, a sort of um, tangent topic. I, I The second time in the States, I didn't really enjoy my time in high school mm. in the States. I think there were a bit of a... Um, the beginning of sort of like this U.S. was no longer a country where people were mingling despite the different ethnic backgrounds. In my high school, basically the white population, the black population, Asians, like Japanese, Chinese, Korean, they were all in separate groups. Oh, really? Wow. Where, where, where were you? I was in New Jersey and okay. I really didn't like that sort of um, segregation almost. <laughs> And um, the first time I was in the United States, I was growing up in Indiana, Minnesota. It was a very different sort of, um, I felt like people were mingling much more. You know what it is, I think, it is, is um, I, I grew up mostly in Texas from fourth mm -hmm. grade to uh, high school. Um, when I went to the West Coast, that's when I figured out I was a minority. Uh, you know what I mean, because like when I was in Texas going to school in Houston and Austin, uh -huh. I was the only Japanese in my school. I was the only Asian in my school, practically, right? Yeah, so so in that case, you're not a minority, you're just sort of like this anomaly. <laughs> and they say, like, oh, okay, you're you're honorary white. <laughs> but you go to oh. a you go to a region where there's a you know, yeah. there's a population of Asians or other minorities mm -hmm. and, and they tend to sort of you know hang out with one another yeah. then, then you become a minority oh that's, yeah that's so true yeah that, that was the case I was like the only Japanese kid in my elementary school in Indiana so maybe 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 that's exactly the experience that you went through but I just I just felt I wanted to sort of me go and have friends across different ethnic groups diverse backgrounds but it just didn't seem like that was happening at least in my time I see. high school so I see. yeah I see. all right that's interesting yeah because my sisters they said you know mm. well you're a boy so you can go back to japan and live but we're girls and so we're not going to be able to you know have uh you know fulfilling lives as women uh, in japan so well so, that's another, yeah, that's another and so and so they, they, they stay in the u.s and mm. <laughs> even my parents are living you know still living in the u.s so so you're the only one who came so, back. I'm the anomaly. So, I... <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I kind I kind of hijacked your conversation. But so you went back to uh, Ko uh, SFC for, for, um, for audiences that doesn't know Ko SFC. Um, you should probably give a real short description. Because it's, a very description. it's a very unique school, I think. It's a very unique school that provides multi-disciplinary studies. Um, for students who have a concrete sort of area of interest. And I think a lot of the, the way the examination process um, 
is to really drill down to students to understand what their core interest is in this world and what is it that they want to do around researching and around understanding or in the future what fields they want to sort of solve um, in, in society. So I think the rhetoric and the narrative of school was Mirai Karala, you would say. So um, exchange students from the future mm-hmm. or something along that line. Yeah. So basically it, it, it was a very exciting time to join that SFC um, platform. I had a very specific question, which was my, narr- my sort of a, um, topic was how do we best create systematic change to remove poverty from, from this world? And I kind of deep dived into various um, areas of studies. I looked into business, finance, marketing, um, negotiations, international relations, international economy, sociology, like very diverse areas. But the, the great thing about SFC is like, you have an ongoing topic that you wanna understand through the lens of different areas. And my conclusion after the four years I was at SFC was like, I was really struggling to understand if I should go into UN, NGOs, international organizations who, who do a lot of these work in the fields. But my conclusion was that we need to change our financial system. We need to change business language, business value of how we define value. Okay, that's a, that's an important point. But why, why, why? How did you figure that out? And when you were a university student trying to go well, into the job market, I remember how I was very emotional when it came to very specific points about what value is mm. in these classes, and values was always sort of. In, in the traditional sense, it was always defined that it's shareholders' best interest or maximizing profit for the shareholders to be paid back. But to me, companies played a much more multidisciplinary role in society. I see it, I see companies in private sector as the engines of a very inclusive social economic growth. So it's not just the stakeholders that they should be focusing are not just shareholders, but the community as a whole, um, the supply chain, um, it, it, the, the, the list of stakeholders are very wide. And I just felt like our current financial accounting system and financial indices only focus on one very narrow-minded <laughs> definition of what value is. So I, I always felt it was, it was wrong in a way. And I always felt like um, we need to diversify what we mean by value, business value or private sectors value that they're providing to society. So that's why I ended up working at Citigroup. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, that's kind of a leap from, from poverty yeah, to, to Citibank. <laughs> <laughs> I first wanted to understand how the current system works. Okay. So during those years, um, I, I obtained my U.S. sort of CPA. Um, I wasn't necessarily doing like sort of the front line of this work around like stock and and um, it, it wasn't 
it was I, I was more in the back office understanding the business metrics. Mm -hmm. I worked closely with the management about like what what does long term sort of business client portfolio look like? What are the long term metrics that we could implement in their IBD management system and stuff like that? But IBD is investment <clears throat> banking, banking division. division. <clears throat> For me, it was really just to understand how the system works. I never really thought that I would stay there for a long time, but during those years, that was when I learned about Prince Charles' work on accounting for sustainability. So he mm -hmm. was basically saying, with our current accounting system and accounting standards, this planet is not gonna exist. <laughs> so he launched in the UK, the accounting for sustainability when, when, when was that? How many years ago? Um, so I was working in banking in back in two, early like 2005. I joined Citigroup in 2005. So I'm sure his work came before that. Okay. Um, but I also noticed how there was a growing... Was uh, that aligned, we think, with the MDGs? But it may have been because he okay. was really into the environmental agenda. Okay. Well, MDG is more about basic human needs, right? So, mm -hmm. but probably around the same era, right? I would imagine. Yeah, probably. Okay. So basically, I learned about this new accounting approach, and I also started to learn about the ESG movement, which was really sort of pioneered in Europe. So after my, I, I did my Cambridge MBA and during that time, I kind of dived into like how private sectors are starting to measure their social impact. And after my MBA, I joined the FTSE for Good Index team. I also worked at um, Sustainalytics, which is the company that provides ESG information to investors. And then I realized how this ESG sector is a growing sector, but it's it hasn't been really picked up by sort of the bigger investors and the bigger decision makers of society. Okay. So that's how I ended up working at the World Economic Forum, where I wanted to really put forward the SDGs or like social impact agenda at, at a platform like Davos. Okay. So I joined the World Economic Forum and worked there for a few years. Um, I'm sorry, that that was back when? Back in 2000, I think, 13? 13, no, okay. No, 2012. Okay. Um, around that time, and I, I was there for about four years, I think. But basically, I was in charge of... Um, Working with the Japanese government. Okay. Japanese okay. So when the Abe uh, administration basically came into power. It, yeah. 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 Okay. I see. That time. So Japan was sort of making, I don't know, make its presence, regain its presence in the world, I guess, around that time. Yeah. Okay. Abenomics was, was really receiving a lot of global attention. Right. Okay. And it was really interesting to really see how the World Economic Forum is a platform where you convene top leaders from business, government, international organizations, NGOs, and all the key stakeholders to really dive into a specific agenda. And it was really interesting. And I felt like there was a lot of meaningful agenda that was launched there. And one of them was SEPI. I'm sorry? 
One of one of them was Sapi. 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 Um, it's the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation. Okay. S A P I. C E P I. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. C E P I. Okay. Okay. Got it. All sorry. Right. Yeah. Sapi. So. SEPI was launched in 2017, but it was exactly launched just for a pandemic like this, which is happening right now. So what happened in 2016 was in, in Africa, you were seeing a lot of Ebola crisis happening and world leaders realized back then that we didn't really have a global common good type platform that encourages really rapid vaccine development for pandemics and future threats of humanity. Um, so SEPI was launched in 2017 at Davos. And that was the time when I started to understand um, the role of the Gates Foundation, how global health is very much at the heart of poverty alleviation, and just understanding how the mechanism of bringing SEPI. Um, so SEPI is sort of like they work very closely with the private sector as well as international organizations, governments, NGOs. It's a it's a basically an alliance. So, as we love to say in Japan, it's a public-private partnership type organization, and which is not the traditional UN type organization that we see in development. So, this really fascinated me, and I was like, oh, the Gates Foundation. So I applied to the foundation in 2017. And it's been four years. And you got um, the but, job. That's that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yes, I did get the job. I was very persistent. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's good. Well, excellent. Yeah. Well, so basically, so your childhood uh, dream or or aspiration at six years old, you took a detour in the finance and yeah. I guess uh, rate not not rating in the agency. What's FTSE was a uh, index, I guess. Yeah. Company, mm-hmm. so you learned a trade of the finance industry, and but you came back to your original aspiration as a six-year-old. Yeah, is that right? Is that yes. the, oh wow, that's 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 that's, that's very very impressive actually. Because um, when I was six years old, I wasn't thinking about anything. <laughs> um, so let's go. Let's go. Let's. Um, talk about the Gates Foundation because the mm-hmm. Gates Foundation, I mean, I've been in dabbling in the work of global health for about, oh, I guess about 10 years or so. And mm-hmm. they were always a, um, you know, a powerhouse in, in terms of the leadership in the, in the think, the, the think that the, uh, the, uh, the policy and the direction of the um, global health and, and that the they were not just a uh, think tank, but they were a do tank because they had lots of uh, capital to deploy. Mm-hmm. And so, so they, they were uh, really, really, they were back then and they are still the major player in the private sector for, for global health. And so mm-hmm. your image of the Gates Foundation entering and four years later is mm-hmm. what you expected? Yeah, I, um, there was a lot of good surprises. Um, I think, so just to uh, share a bit about the Gates Foundation mm-hmm. for people who don't know mm-hmm. what we do. So we we were founded by um, Bill and Melinda Gates, who, who has a belief that every life has equal value. So the world that we're trying to create is wherever you are born in this world, we want to ensure that everybody is given the chance to fulfill their 
life in the most productive and happiest way. Um, and that is to really ensure people have basic nutrition, health, um, education that enables that path. Um, so we, we, we are, are a size of about 1,700 employees across the world. Our grant payments um, in the past 20 years since we were um, created in 2000 is about 60 billion to date. Um, and in 2020 alone, we made about $5.8 billion in payments. Mm. Um, what was really interesting for me joining the foundation was like, I was really surprised and impressed by how it's an organization that really um, drives for results. And driving for results, it's a very business-like organization where we spend a lot of time working on our strategy, working on data analysis with scientific rigor, and we just make sure that whatever investments we make, we are choosing on, on a strategy that Bill and Melinda has approved. And based on that strategy, we, we try our best to deliver the best results in mm. terms of impact. Um, I think this sort of business-like mindset is, is quite unique, I must um, that was a, that was a very nice. I mean, the development question. development world. That's probably yeah. yeah. So it's not just about doing good, but showing that you're doing good. I guess is the point. Yeah. Right? Okay. So in my role at, in in Japan, we mainly work closely with various sectors, including the Japanese government, um, the private sector, um, NGOs, think tanks, and academia, and you. Shibasa-san, you've been leading our work um, when it comes to our government sort of policy agenda, sort of proposals as well. We recently, um, in, in April, submitted a policy proposal to Prime Minister Suga asking to- For, Former Prime Minister. Former, former Prime, Prime Minister, Minister Suga. Suga. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, about the importance of global health. Um, and I think with COVID happening, many, private sector leaders are realizing how global health and ODA, like the choices that you make are not only affecting lives in Japan and also in low-income countries as well, but also it has heavily affected our economy. So I think we have a very strong case about why global health, investing in pandemic preparedness, infectious disease, um, it's, it, it has a very, very clear, unfortunate sort of fact today that this is an area that should not be ignored and we should really reconsider our priorities in ODAs as well. Um, with the private sector, we work a lot with the pharmaceutical industry, um, also with um, ICT and sort of other health-related areas um, to really promote innovations and services that could really drive change on, on the fields. So we, we work across a, a range of, of sectors and leaders in Japan. Mm. You know, I thought the the group business leaders for promoting global health. Um, yes. <laughs> um, I found that interesting because about 10 years ago, most of business leaders who would be supporting global health was people in the pharmaceutical industry mm. and maybe some medical, you know, device industry. Mm. So it was right up their alley in a sense. Mm. 
but this time around, of course, we had Shionogi as one of the core members. Mm. Um, we had Takeda come and speak. Um, but um, we had people like NEC, which is, you know, like you said, ICT. Um, mm. Ten years ago, they weren't, as far as what, what I could see, they weren't really on the radar screen in terms of global health. Um, Toyota Tsusho, which is a, a trading company here in, in Japan, but they have a strength in um, Africa. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it was kind of encouraging for me to see the, uh, the, what's, what's the right word for it? The, uh, the breadth, breadth of mm-hmm. the, uh, participation for, and these were the top, you know, CEO and chairman of the, their, their respective organizations. Mm-hmm. It, it was, it's a trend that I didn't see about 10 years ago. So. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, no, I think, I think it's really great. I think it's a combination of this COVID pandemic really raising business leaders' interest on on health and global health-related social agenda and the fact that many Japanese private sector leaders are noticing the importance of SDGs and what it means for business value creation um, in the context of maybe ESG and sort of when it comes to their core long-term business identifying what areas that they can provide solutions is becoming much more um, a topic that top leaders like CEOs and chairmen prioritize more and more. So I think it's a great trend for, for, for the foundation. We, we love to work with companies who are here to really provide solutions for, for the issues that we face in low and middle, lower middle income countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and the proposal that we uh, gave to the former prime minister, um, we one of the I guess the key point was to double the allocation to global health in the ODA, over, overseas development assistance. Can we, can you talk about why that's important? I think um, so. This was the policy proposal that followed a official policy proposal that was submitted by the LDP party. Um, so the LDP party's official proposal also asked to double Japan's health global health LDA. And it came from the fact that if you compare across G7 countries, say for example, the United States allocate about one third of its health, um, ODA to health. And in the UK as well, the country allocates about 15 to 20% um, to health. In Japan's case, Japan's ODA has very much focused on infrastructure and energy, and health has only been about three to five percent, depending on that year, which fluctuates, but it's still very small when you look at the proportion of health itself. So coming from that, um, if you look into the OECD DEC countries average, um, the DEC average of how much they spend on um, focus on health was about um, eight to nine percent. And so I think we wanted to ask the government to get closer to at least the DAC average. Mm-hmm. So basically doubling it to about 10 percent. Yes. <laughs> currently, um, which makes sense because, you know, Japan's uh, uh, foreign policy initiative for the, as far as I'm concerned, the last 20 years was all about human security, advancing human security in the world. And, and obviously global health is a big, a big part of that, but increasing, uh, 
overseas development, doubling the allocation when we have domestic issues, even health with, with, with COVID, it's kind of a challenge for politicians, right? So how, how should the policymakers in Japan think about this proposal in terms of doubling you know, public spending, taxpayers' money on people that, frankly, most people in Japan won't have ever have any contact with? I think that's a great question. I think um, at the global level, there's been a lot of conversation at the G20, at the G7, um, how the world needs much more resources for pandemic preparedness. I think the current target um, at the G20 is to secure at least 10 million a year from- 10, I'm sorry, 10 million? Billion. 10 billion. Billion, right? Okay. 10 billion a year. And so if you look at the magnitude of how much it has cost to rich economies, how this pandemic has cost to the rich economies, focusing and prioritizing and preparing for future pandemics is not necessarily a, a high investment to start with. If we invest early, um, I think the pandemic and the response will be much more mitigated. So across donor countries, there's ongoing conversations that the world needs to prepare much more resources and much more funding for future pandemics and to overcome this current COVID crisis. And the, I think across policymakers, the, the world does recognize that need. It's, it's really a, a matter of how, how do we find that resource. And so at the G20, um, later this month, there may be some progress made about how the, how the sort of G7 and G20 countries will come together to, to make this resource available. And I, I think we need to also remind ourselves that this pandemic will not end until low-income countries and middle-income countries also receive the necessary vaccines, therapeutics, and diagnostics to overcome COVID. Um, unfortunately, we've been seeing all these new variants coming from India, South Africa. Virus in general, um, if, you're, if, if a population is not vaccinated, unfortunately, the virus sort of evolves much stronger and it becomes a much stronger variant. And so even if a, a part of rich economies are fully vaccinated and fully safe, it doesn't mean that we have eliminated COVID from this planet. And because we're such a mobile, highly um, connected economy today, it will always come back to rich countries. So I think to be very strategically smart, we, we, want, we want to ensure that for policymakers, it's also for their responsibility to keep in mind that things happening in low and middle income countries are also a threat and a risk to protect their economy and their people. So while I totally understand how overseas developments has been a challenging topic when the Japanese economy is suffering. It has a very strong economic case as well as it's, it's also related to the lives of how many 
Japanese people's death can be prevented in the future mm -hmm. through these variants. So, yeah, I, I would agree that you know Japan has a uh, one responsibility as a uh, uh, you know a leader in in being one of the advanced nations of the world, a responsibility for the world. One and two, being prepared is always a it's always a good thing. And, and three, it's actually an investment for the future, I think, which is a point that I think that it's very hard to see that how ODA is becoming an investment for the future because it's very hard to visualize because it's not a short-term kind of investment. But um, um, from that three sort of uh, three perspectives, you know, especially for this made with Japan model that I am hoping that yes. uh, we can establish uh, in, in this, you know, new era. Mm. Um, yeah, I think ODA, uh, uh, smart, I guess, smart ODA, not, not, not just, you know, just not, not just increasing the size blindly, mm. but, mm. but smart ODA. And it, it seems like to me, global health is, is a smart, but in terms of the, um, it's not just throwing the money, I think at, at these problems, right? Because we're, we're talking about public private sector partnership and I guess one of the criticisms about ODA is the fact that actually you're just spent, you're saying you're spending money for development over abroad, but actually you're just providing uh, financing to the company, Japanese company, like let's say infrastructure or something. What, what, what do you think about that? Um, so comparing to infrastructure and energy, health is an area that Japan's ODA has not really worked that closely with the private sector. So I was quite shocked to see that at the UN, they have, they have the public procurement sector, mm -hmm. which is a huge sector. And amongst that, when you look at what's the proportion of Japanese companies, it was only 0.7%. 0. 0.7, so, less than 1%? Less than 1%. Okay. 0.7% was procured by Japanese companies through the UN procurement system. I see. And it's very small. And amongst the G7, we're, we're, we're the last. Um, so just for example, like in, in 2020, um, US had about like over 3,700 procurement contracts. In Japan, it was about 460. So it's the scale and the size is really different. The proportion mm. is really tiny in Japan. I think, um, on the other hand, we're seeing a lot of growing interest from Japanese companies wanting to work with UNICEF or Gavi, Global Fund, all of our partners. They want to work not just for their business future, um, but it's, it's really around the ESG and the societal value that can, they can create in the long term. So there seems to be a gap when it comes to procurement and um, especially within the global health sector, I, I see there's a growing opportunity where we can also bring in a little more from the private sector when you look into the Japanese market because infrastructure and energy, yes, there's been a lot of criticism that it might be just benefiting the Japanese private sector. But if you look at health, that is just totally not the case. and mm. Comparing to the international players, we're so behind in, in working closely with the UN system, um, these international organizations who are driving change on the ground. So 
I think that could be a very interesting entry point for many Japanese companies. We're Japan's a shrinking economy. We're not going to have huge consumer、um, size in the future. So we、mm-hmm. obviously need to go abroad. And I think for these emerging markets, low and middle income countries where we see future growth, working with the private sector, the government, and international organizations, I think、um, starting out with The procurement system with international organizations or working with the governments of, of these low and middle income countries can be a very interesting way to, to, to build their、um, market abroad. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you.、Um, but、uh, on the other hand, ODA assistance should be, it should be fair, right? And from the government's perspective, it should be fair and it shouldn't be. You know, having、uh, fa- showing favoritism to a particular, let's say, company or something like that. So, h- how do we ensure that it's fair yet? Yeah. You know, no, I, I totally, it's the procurement system for any international organization. The Gates Foundation would never want to, to、um, pressure and influence that process itself. It should be based on scientific evidence, on facts, and A very,、um, it has a, a system in place that needs to be worked out. So, I think what we're recognizing right now is that there is the Japanese private sector is quite behind, and we need to identify what that bottleneck is.、Um, we're not trying to、um, encourage you one system to work with the Japanese companies. I think what, what we're trying to do is. Really enable that channel for the Japanese companies, especially the not just the big companies who are listed on the market, but maybe more small enterprises as well. What is it that the technologies that they have or the, the, the goods and services that they have? I, I believe that there's a lot of potential in, in the Japanese private sector that hasn't been recognized.、Um, How it could play a major role in, in these low and lower and middle income countries. So, I think we need to first start by connecting and introducing that these opportunities of working with the UN system exist to start with,、mm-hmm. and also encourage them to, to apply and work on that documentation process. I think there's also a barrier around language. So,、um, <laughs> documentation in English and applying things in English could be also a, quite a challenge for some, some companies in Japan. So, we're trying to under, identify、um, areas where we could best support、um, that as well.、Mm. I guess in the past, you know, there was a、um, common sort of understanding in the sense that Japanese technology was good. But it was always too expensive, that it wasn't cost competitive.、Um, not, not just related to global health, but in, in, in various other areas. That's true, but, but then, you know, the cost for Japanese manufacturing in terms of, let's say,、uh, pay, paying the employees obviously hasn't gone up in the last 30 years very much.、Um, and so the, the cost competitiveness. I think question is, yeah, maybe 30, 20 years ago, that was a sense. But now it's, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not, Japan is not a very expensive place anymore. 
right? And so it's not just the cost competitiveness, but let's say if you're servicing uh, uh, emerging market with some technology or some product, um, seems like to me you, you would need after service for that. And perhaps that, that's an area that maybe Japan lacks is it, sort of the, uh, the human resource in the area of global health, you know, on the ground globally. What, what do you think mm-hmm. about that? Yeah, I think that's a very important point about what's valued about Japanese ODA. I think um, the private sector definitely has strength there. Um, if, if we can show, comparing to other countries' development, perhaps there is a um, strength in Japanese development and Japanese private sector that they tend to want to invest in human resource in those countries. Um, they want to ensure that even when they, without Japanese support, there is a sustainable model where you have the right human resource capacity that's sort of trained through the Japanese side. And so I think capacity building, human resource um, are, are an area that we should definitely consider as um, strength of Japanese LDA. Are there, are there any initiatives by the Gates Foundation in terms of promoting uh, this human resource in the area of global health? Not yet. Um, I think I think we're just starting to look into what we can do. I think that can be something that we could address in the long term. And for now, I think we just want to really identify um, what will be the best models to to ensure the Japanese government development quality and quantity going up, as well as the private sector's involvement in global health. What is the best way to ensure that the quality and quantity goes up there as well? And what are the intersections of public-private types models that we could help facilitate through the foundation? So. I see, I see. Um, you, you mentioned in the past about this program called the Goal, goal Setters, is that right? The Goalkeepers. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Yes. Goal, goalkeepers and that's yes. goalkeeping what 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 are they keeping the goals for the, they're, 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 the goals are the sdgs okay the sustainable development goals what we've been doing is um when the sdgs became available in 2015 when they were launched the first thing the foundation did was um we really wanted to make sure that it reached the public so we have invested in a in a PR agency called Project Everyone that focuses on. Can you repeat that? I'm sorry. Project. Project Everyone. Project Everyone. Okay. Yes. So Project Everyone is a um, PR agency that only does PR for the SDGs, and they created the logos of the SDGs ring, the different marks that we have for the 17 goals. Um, so that was provided to the UN free. So they they sort of use that logos in the SDG circle. And I think it's been heavily adopted in the Japanese private sector. Mm-hmm. It's great to see a lot of business leaders wearing that SDG ring. So that was the first thing we did because we, we just wanted to make sure. Really that bad badge. The badge, yeah. It's, it's, not a ring, badge. it's not a ring on your finger, but it's a No, no, ring. sorry. It's the SDG badges. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, but basically, we just wanted to make sure that it's well recognized 
that people know that the SDGs are there. And then also to just get people familiar with the 17 goals itself. And then the second thing we did was to launch this Goalkeepers, which is a annual report that we release every year around the um, UN General Assembly meeting in, in September. Mm -hmm. So last month we launched our um, Goalkeepers report. We usually have a gathering, a, a, um, a meeting called Goalkeepers in, in New York. Um, we had like singers like Ed Sheeran, um, we had President Obama come to one of our events. Basically, we try to bring in all of the people who work on the ground for the SDGs and bring political leaders, NGO leaders, and sort of celebrate the progress that we're making on, around the SDGs. Um, so that's just been announced last month. And some of the key findings that we had this year, some, some part of the story is still very sad. So we, when we look at the world today, we recognize how COVID is really harding. Um, it's been hit, it's, it will affect the most um, to, the, to the sort of poorest population. So we know that by next year, 90% of rich economies will regain the pre-pandemic per capita income, but only a third of low and middle income economies are expected to do so. Um, we also know that women's employment globally is expected to remain 13 million jobs below the 2019 level, while men's employment is largely expected to recover to pre-pandemic rates. Um, and we also know that the IHME announced that an additional 31 million people were pushed into extreme poverty comparing to 2019. So that was AIHA? IHME. Yes. W which stands for, I'm sorry. IHME stands for um, the Internet Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation. Okay. So we, we, we recognize how there's a lot of um, sort of the, the poorest population will continue to sort of pay the most burden in, in, uh, through this COVID. But we also saw a lot of great advancement. Um, I think one thing is that the rapid development of this COVID-19, it didn't just happen, it didn't just fall out of the sky. It, it, be, it happened, we were able to have vaccines in 12 months because of investments that we had like instruments like SEPI. And it, it happened because of decades of long investments in planning and coordination. So COVID had showed a lot of um, the fragile size of our economy and how the most vulnerable continue to be the most hardest hit by these pandemics. But also we've seen how when the world comes together to prepare for future pandemics, and when we have a coordination mechanism in place, um, SEPI did deliver in 12 months to succeed in having a vaccine. And vaccines usually take tens or decades of, of work. So I think to a certain extent, we can say that we are making progress. 
when it comes to the inequity that the world faces, um, we have a lot more to do. I see. So, so you're still angry. <laughs> in, 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 a, in a good way. <laughs> I, I think it's, it's a great question because sometimes I ask myself, my six-year-old self, if I'm happy about the state of the world. And I don't feel like I can fully be confident. I feel like I feel like I've become that adult system in a way. So I do think we're quite behind when when it comes to protecting children, protecting the most vulnerable population. Another sad fact that came out last week from the World Bank's global financing facility is that we learned that for every COVID-related death in low-income countries, there's at least twice double two, sorry, there's at least two women or child death that came because of um, the burden on the health system itself. So these deaths- uh, 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 Unrelated to COVID. Unrelated to COVID, so it could be other issues. It could be treatments of other um, malaria, and malaria, TB, yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah. Maternal health, nutrition, whatever it could be. But we pay a lot of attention on COVID, but the COVID, COVID pandemic itself is putting so much strain on the health systems itself. So that was another fact that came out that made me a bit <laughs> disappointed. <laughs> Okay. So I um, wanted to sort of start wrapping up our session because I'm keeping um, you from your busy schedule today. You mentioned earlier about Prince Charles accounting for sustainability. Yeah. <laughs> um, currently, there is an initiative by the Harvard Business called the Impact Weight Account Initiative, um, headed by uh, Professor George Serafang. In, 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 I know, I know George, uh, and you know George. Um, what, what, what should we be expecting out of that, especially in the Japan context? Well, I'm really happy that work, I'm working with you on this as well, um, outside of global health. Um, but basically, um, the Harvard Impact Weighted Accounts Initiative really focuses on how do we monetize and evaluate value on financial accounting disclosure. So for profit and loss statements and on the balance sheet, what are the missing impacts that we need to evaluate and integrate? Um, I think comparing to integrated reporting, comparing to ESG, which has been outside of the financial disclosure, this is kind of revolutionary because it brings investors a very concrete set of tools of an investment making decision in their language of balance sheets and profits and loss statements, as well as for um, the executives of companies to make their business decisions. If we're able to integrate impact onto these um, financial reporting system, that's quite a very powerful tool for for companies to make long-term strategic decisions. So I'm really hoping that with your leadership, we could kind of branch global health 
is an area that brings concrete social impact to low and middle income countries, if we can work around how social impact in the long term and how these pharmaceutical or any kind of work related to health, um, it could be ICT, it could be um, vaccine delivery, it could be um, diagnostic, it could be anything that relates to the health of these, the poorest population in the world. What does that service and what does that product mean to these economies in the long term? And I think cracking that really could define what social impact should look like. So I'm really excited that we're working on this project as well. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I mean, I've been dabbling in this area of impact investing, uh, I guess, from around uh, 2013, 14, something like that. Um, but a couple of years ago, two years ago, right before when COVID broke out in New York, I was in New York with the UNDP uh, SDG Impact uh, Steering Group. And during the meeting, uh, Sir Ronald Cohen, who's a member of, of the steering group, he's, I would consider him as the father of impact investing. And he made an interesting statement that I remember clearly uh, that left an impression on me. It was that he said, you know, the world is already entering into post ESG, after mm -hmm. ESG. There's a, there's a new, new trend happening. And, and ESG is basically about disclosing non-financial, non-tangible assets. Um, and, and investors can either make a negative screening based on that or a positive screening to, mm -hmm. to investing in that, right? And, and so there's been a lot of focus on ESG, certainly over the last several years. But Ronnie's point was that it's going. It's the trend is going beyond that, and mm -hmm. and, and companies are going to be uh, asked to actually measure the impact, mm -hmm. the social and the economic impact. And if you're measuring the impact, well, are you setting goals, objective based based on that measurement? And so I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, post ESG uh, trend. Um, and then six months later, uh, so about a year ago, Ronnie had an article on the FT and basically was linking that with this accounting, mm. uh, IWA. Uh, what I found out later was the IWAI um, project headed by Harvard Business School. But his point was that, which I thought was very interesting, was that the current accounting standards that we take mm. for granted um, was actually started back in around 1933 during a prior shock. Mm. Yeah, and back then companies pushed back saying, "Hey, we can't we can't be measuring companies with different sizes of companies, different industries based on just mm. one number." Mm. Um, but now it, it's it, that's a standard, right? Mm. And so Ronnie's point was that well, we're currently in a crisis, COVID. Mm. Um, so maybe you know in the future. 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, maybe, or, or I'm sorry, 20, 30, or 40 years ago from now, we'll be looking back says, ah, we'll be, we're measuring social and economic impact on, on companies accounting because we had this shock uh, back mm. in 2020, 2021. And so I mm. thought that, that's, a, that's a very interesting, you know, uh, way to look at it. And so that's why I got interested uh, in this impact weight accounting initiative. Um, and I think for Japanese companies is very, very important because I think a lot of Japanese companies, their non-tangible assets, they have a they have a problem. This is a big issue, I think, for many corporations is to um, have the 
financial capital markets recognize mm. that yeah. non-tangible financial asset, non-financial assets. And I think, frankly, many Japanese corporations are doing the proper things, but they have mm. uh, they have some, you know, they can do a little bit more in terms of communicating that, I yeah. think, to the, to yeah. the, you know, capital markets and, and the um and the public in general and mm-hmm. in the end that that'll raise the you know the value of the company uh mm-hmm. in terms of the valuation i think so yeah i really hope that when i was working in the esg field from sustainalytics or FTSE for good index i just felt like these esg standards has been created primarily in european and sort of u.s circles and I I really hope that we'll we'll be able to sort of be a part of that sort of rulemaking process like Japan also taking a role in that would would really change things because Mm -hmm. every context every environment and country has a very different contextual sort of um, things to factors to consider and I think um, if, if we don't raise a voice if we don't be a part of that rulemaking it will always be difficult to communicate what Japanese private sector's value creation process looks like. So I'm really, I'm really happy that I'm able to work with you, Shibasaka, on this. But I, I hope that um, we'll be able to um, leverage our, our network of great business leaders who are really committed to global health, also for social impact in general, um, and also environmental and other impacts as well. So. Really looking forward to this work. Great. Well, thank you so much. Um, so thank you very much for, for the wonderful conversation. Um, I could talk for hours and hours with you on this topic, <laughs> but <laughs> um, I really always enjoy our conversation. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Thank so, you again. All right, thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mihoko. As you can see, the fire that was lit in that little six-year-old girl is still burning very, very strongly. I think we're fortunate to have Mihoko remind us that it is important to keep that fire lit. So, please stay tuned for another episode of Made with Japan. Until then, please have a nice day or evening, wherever you are.